right, would you please remain standing with me for the reading of God's Word? And this morning we'll be in Exodus chapter 1, reading the entire chapter. And if you happen to be new to the Bible, the book of Exodus is the second book in. So Genesis, then Exodus, and you're there. And once you are there, I'll read for us Exodus chapter 1, the entire chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaacar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Patham and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, this is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, for those of you who may already be thinking it, let me start off by saying that Exodus 1 is definitely not your traditional Palm Sunday passage. Uh, But I chose it because my purpose this Palm Sunday morning is to give some words of guidance for us as we enter into Holy Week, a week in which we journey together from here into the heavy darkness of Good Friday and then on into the beautiful light of Easter Sunday. And I believe Exodus 1 contains the words of guidance we need as we experience those extremes. Uh, If you've been around at church for a while, then you know that Palm Sunday has a feel of joy to it, as the kiddos just demonstrated a few minutes ago. And it does so because on that day that's become known as Palm Sunday, one of God's promises of old came to pass. But the question I want us to think about together today is, 
what was it about that event that evoked such a joyful celebration by the people? And what, if any effect, is it meant to have on us today? So what was it about that event that evoked such a joyful celebration by the people? And what, if any effect, is it meant to have on us today? And just to make sure I'm not leaving anyone guessing, let's all turn over quickly to John chapter 12, where we can read about that very first Palm Sunday. John chapter 12, 12 through 19. John records the event of that day like this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So what was going on there? Well, God's promise of a coming king who would bring salvation, peace, and glory came to pass. And it did so in a period of time long since this promise had first been made and in a time that was marked by darkness. And so I want to ask you to put your history hats on just for a second. I know some of you are on spring break, so you're not in that kind of a mood. But just for a minute, I want us to think what it must have been like for the people of old on that first Palm Sunday. And as we do... We find ourselves here in a time when their rulers did whatever it took to protect and to promote their earthly kingdoms. And I do mean they did whatever it took, whether that was through a royal decree to snuff out the life of baby boys because they posed potential threats to their royal throne like King Herod did when Jesus was born, or through heavy taxes or other difficult customs that were used to pave the path for their own political agendas. Those were the kinds of experiences that shaped much of their lives. And because it was, we're right to say then that this chapter in the story of the lives of God's people was dark. They must have been asking themselves things like, where is God? Would he show up? And what about his promise to help? And then onto their scene broke the light of a different kind of ruler, one who instead of using his power to get what he wanted would set it aside in order to serve. That's why while the crowd chose palm branches, symbolizing a conquering king as they welcomed Jesus into the city, Jesus chose a donkey, 
symbolizing the humble way he'd go by laying down his life for others. Jesus would be the one who would not only survive King Herod's plan to kill him as a newborn, but one who would also go toe-to-toe with an even stronger enemy, withstanding the temptation of the devil, setting his prisoners free, and proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. And that's why that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it evoked such a joyful celebration by the people. And I want you to know that it's meant to do the very same thing for you today as you encounter the times of difficulty and darkness that are part of your story. And I say that because, truth be told, the similarities between us and the people of God we read about in his story are much, much closer than we sometimes think. We could put it this way, what they needed then is exactly what we need today. Let me try to show you what I mean by just asking a few questions about our lives today. First, is your soul weighed down and your heart heavy with news this past week of yet another school shooting? I feel like I just got off the phone with some of you who have students at MSU checking in to see if they were okay, and here we are again. Does this sort of thing make you pray and wonder how and when God will show up and help? Another question just to illustrate our condition is this. Are you, like me and my family are, finding yourself journeying through the difficult moments of life and death? Just a year ago, we were celebrating my dad's birthday together with him, uh, but this past Monday we found ourselves standing... Sorry, standing together in front of his grave on what would have been his 75th birthday. These times can definitely make you feel lost and wonder what to do, can't they? Or maybe just this basic question. Do you find it hard to live out your faith in a world that challenges the very concept of truth, let alone God's truth? Or are you facing the difficulty of watching a friend or loved one who's caught in the middle of that kind of confusion? These kinds of difficulties cast darkness onto the story of our lives. But Palm Sunday stands to remind us that God is writing a story too. And it's a story of promise that causes light to shine brightly onto the scene of our lives. And because of Jesus your story can also include the reality of God's promise, a promise that gives us guidance and hope along the way. And so I've entitled today's message, Your Story and the Story of God's Promise. I want to invite you to come along with me as we connect the two. And while God's story is told using all 66 books of the Bible, I want us to turn our attention to just one book, and to one chapter at that, the book of Exodus, chapter 1, the passage we read earlier. Because here we find an embedded story that includes the core components of God's entire story. And it does so in such a way that helps us to better understand life and how to walk with God through it. The first thing I want us to note is that Exodus is a continuation of God's story. It's not the beginning of a new one. 
Or let me put it this way, Joseph, his brothers, and their entire generation may have died, but God's promises hadn't, and so his story keeps going. This point isn't all that apparent from the text in our English translations, as verse 1 begins with just a statement of fact. But in the original language, the word and is the first word in verse 1. So instead of reading, these are the names, dot, 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 more literally, we should read, and these are the names, dot, dot, dot. That little word, and, acts as a link, acts as a link between what God began to do in Genesis and what he continued to do here in Exodus. This is actually the case in most of the Old Testament, Old Testament historical books. They begin with the word and, indicating, as one Old Testament scholar put it, quote, further evidence of the writer's consciousness that he is not starting a new story, but continuing with the next episode of an ongoing narrative, the story of God's dealings with his chosen people throughout the history of this world, end quote. But what was it that God began to do in Genesis that he continued to do here in Exodus? Well, to put it simply, God was fulfilling his promise to bless his people, which tells us something pretty basic, yet very profound about the story that God is writing. And that is that God has a plan to make right what sin has made so wrong. God has a plan to make right what sin has made so so wrong. And that plan is carried along by God's promises. Now, the first we hear of this is way back in the beginning of God's story when sin entered into God's good world. Genesis 3.15. It records this for us from God in response to Satan's work against him where God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And as God's story would continue to unfold, we learn a couple of things about this very first promise. And the first thing we learn is that the one who would eventually bruise the head of the serpent would come through the offspring of Abraham. And secondly, we learn that from that first promise that God's plan won't be carried out unchallenged. There will be enmity toward God and opposition against his plan. And that's what we see here in Exodus chapter 1 as it begins by reminding us that in spite of a famine that threatened to wipe out Abraham's offspring, they're actually alive and well, as verses 1 to 7 puts it. Let's look at them again. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaac, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful 
and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so when we read those words, fruitful, multiplied, and the land was filled with them, we should see a bright flashing sign in our minds that says, promises of God. Because, for instance, in Genesis 17, we hear this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And so because of that, when we come to our passage and we hear those words, fruitful, multiplied, and the land was filled with them, we're meant to make the direct connection back to the promises of God. But along with God's plan of making right with his promises, what sin had made so wrong, and the record of those promises beginning to be fulfilled here in Exodus 1, I also want us to note the element of opposition we find in God's story. The element of opposition we find in God's story. And we're already prepped for opposition to come, right? Because of what God promised back in the garden. It takes different forms throughout God's story. But here in Exodus 1, we see it show up there in verse 8 with this new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, whether this king of Egypt didn't actually know Joseph or if he had simply forgotten about him, all that really matters is that he didn't like the fulfillment of God's promises upon Joseph's family. As verse 9 tells us, and he, that is Pharaoh, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Behold, the people of Israel are that way, so come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And with that said, I want to note another simple yet profound reality as it relates to God's story. And that's that God says everybody's either standing with him or standing against him. In God's story, he says that everybody is either standing with him or against him. And I say that because there are clearly only two sides here in Exodus chapter 1. There's the us that we see at the end of verse 9 and the them in the middle of verse 10, referring to God's people, the Israelites. This us-them reality found here and throughout God's story, it can be a complicated one at times because not everybody who's standing against the Lord does so with the same level of animosity that Pharaoh did here in Exodus chapter 1. 
But then at the same time, Scripture does affirm this us-them reality when it records, for instance, these words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, 30, he who is not with me is against me. Or like when James says in James chapter 4, 4, that friendship with the world equals enmity with God. So in other words, at the end of the day, there are only two sides, those who stand with God and those who don't. And each walk their own path, those who follow the Lord down the narrow path and those who don't down the wide path. Now, this does not mean, please hear me here, this does not mean that God's people are to treat non-Christians as their enemies. Instead, we're to love them and to pray for them and to do what we can to bless them. We're to take up the same posture our Lord had when he came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we treat those who don't follow him the same way we treat our enemies, but it does mean that in the story of life that God is writing, he's clear that everybody's written into it. And just like we see here in Exodus 1, that means we're all written in either as those who are with him or those who are standing against him. That's not to say you're stuck if you find yourself here this morning having never yet put your faith in the Lord. You're not. For the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to him in repentance and faith. That means that you can move even today, from those who are standing against him to those who are standing with him. And if you'd like to talk a little bit more about that with someone, you can keep that conversation going, I'm sure, with the person next to you, or you can come and find me afterwards, and I would love to talk some more with you about that. Well, this brings us right into the middle of the next bit of reality that we discover here in our passage. And with it comes one of the many reasons to thank the Lord for giving us his word. And that is simply this. He's honest with us. God is honest with us. And that honesty is seen in the fact that he tells us that those who oppose him are oftentimes in the majority. They're on the giving end rather than on the receiving end of the kind of difficulty that we find here in our passage. They're the ones who, for instance, according to verse 11, are the taskmasters and the beneficiaries from the labor of God's people. Where then does that leave God's people? Well, they're left carrying heavy burdens. They are ruthlessly treated as we see there in verses 13 and 14. And as if that wasn't bad enough, verse 16 shows us just how far Pharaoh was willing to go to advance his agenda against the Lord as he issues the command of infanticide against the baby boys of Israel. Let's look at that again. Verse 16 says, 
Pharaoh is speaking here, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. And though this specific type of cruelty thankfully isn't always the case for God's people, what is, though, is the reality that we will have a difficult time as we live for God and await his promises to come. And isn't that reality affirmed generations later when Jesus told his followers that in this world you will have trouble? It's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. But along with this honest description of what life is usually like for those who are with God and those who stand against him, we also discover that there's more going on than what we can see with our physical eyes. There's more going on than what we can see with our physical eyes. And this is something that instills great hope within the people of God. We're given hints of this in verses 6 and 7, where we read that Joseph died and all his generation, or and his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We see this hint again in verse 12, where we read, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And then again in verses 18 and 19, So the king of Egypt called the midwives. He said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So these hints throughout our passage suggest that it's almost like something else was at work behind the scenes. Almost like in addition to the king of Egypt, there was another king on the scene. A king who, though was not visibly present, was visibly at work, mysteriously using his opponent's tools of death and hardships and seemingly hopeless predicaments as the very means to actually bring about his promises and good purposes for his people. That hint is identified there in verse 17, where for the first time in this story, we read about who? We read about God. It was God who was fulfilling his promises. That's what was causing the people to multiply and grow strong, even in an environment where everything was stacked against them. And that amazing reality of God with us is what gave God's people the much-needed perspective that kept their hope alive as they journeyed through the difficulties and hardships that lay across the path of their pilgrimage to the Promised Land. This reality is what the psalmist would later record when he sung about how God's way was through the sea 
and his path through great waters, but catch this, his footprints were unseen. And while this amazing reality of God's sovereignty at work doesn't make the hardships any less real or painful, while it doesn't eliminate the temptation to bail and go the way of the world, it does help us to keep going with the Lord and looking to Him to do what only He can do. Which is exactly what the two courageous women recorded there for us in verse 15 were doing. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But what did the midwives do? The midwives feared God. Yes, they saw the power and the fury of Pharaoh, but he paled in comparison to the God they saw standing behind him. Yes, they heard what Pharaoh commanded them to do, but the word of God that spoke Pharaoh and them into existence and then commanded them how to live was clearer and louder. And so these two women, one faced with over, once faced with overwhelming odds, are now remembered here in God's story as examples for us all of what it means to find our hope and guidance where? In the Lord. And for those of you wondering about whether they lied or not to Pharaoh, just know that God sees the heart. And that as the judge, Scripture says he always makes the right judgment, as he did here in verses 19 and 20. Because the Hebrew midwives are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them, because they feared God, verse 20 says, so God dealt well with the midwives. Sometimes people like Pharaoh can become so animal-like in their desires and unreasonableness that to engage with them like you would another person may just be as foolish as giving pearls to pigs, Jesus would you later say. There are definitely some points of application here for us as to how to follow the midwife's example of fearing the Lord. Primarily, what's it mean to see the Lord with eyes of faith? And what's it mean to listen to him instead of all the other voices we hear? As the guy who's over small groups, I would just like to say that those things would make two great points of discussion in all of your small groups later today or this week. I would like to say, though, that you all should be encouraged this morning because you're doing both of those things right now in our gathering here today. As we sing to our invisible God about who he is 
in what he's done and what he's doing. And as we pray to him, what are we doing? We're looking to him and we're exercising our eyes of faith. And as we set this time aside to hear from his word, what are we doing? We're exercising our ears of faith as we listen to him. And as we do those things more and more, we will experience the good results that God intends them to have. We will be the people of God who walk by faith and not by sight. That made all the difference in the story of Exodus 1, and it will do the same in our stories too. And hey, while that would be a nice place for this story to end, verse 22 lets us know that the human heart is in such desperate need of God's help that left without it doubling down and relentlessly pursuing what we want is what we'll do. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so in spite of God's sovereignty at work, we see Pharaoh continuing to try to advance his agenda. At the end of chapter 1, that's a very heavy, dark place to be. But I want to ask you, having considered this morning the realities at play within the story that God is writing, can something even as dark as this change in the least bit the plans and promises of God? If we were to keep reading, and go ahead this afternoon, just don't do it now. If we were to keep reading, we would discover that the Lord would even use this move by Pharaoh to continue to advance his plan. And so if you were keeping track of the realities that I tried to bring out from the text today in this embedded story within the meta-narrative of God's story, if you are keeping track of those realities at play, then your notes this morning would look a little something like this. First, God's story continues until his promises come to pass. God's story continues until his promises come to pass. Number two, everybody's story gets written into God's. You're either standing with him or against him. Number three, those who follow the Lord will encounter difficulty and hardships along the way, but the Lord can and he does use those hardships to bring about his promises and good purposes for us. And four, lastly, for those who look to God with eyes of faith, their stories become 
stories of promise too as they receive his hope and guidance along the way? So the answer is no. Not even plans as dark as what we have here at the end of chapter 1 can in the least bit affect the story that God is writing. Well, let me try to wrap things up this morning by coming back to the similarities between our stories and the stories of the people of God we read about today. We saw today that what was true of them is true of us now. They needed guidance and they needed hope as they journeyed toward the promised land, encountering the difficulty and the darkness that comes with being exiles in the world, and so do we. And upon understanding their inability to do what only God could do for them, they asked on more than one occasion, will God come through on his promises? Is there someone strong enough to rescue us? Is there someone who cares enough to help? And eventually, Palm Sunday would answer that question for them with a resounding yes. No wonder then they greeted Jesus with shouts of joy and praise to God. And just as, as important as it was for them then to understand why Jesus came, it's just as important for us to remember that Jesus came not to deal with the mere symptoms of sin and evil. The pharaohs, the herods, the hardships we encounter living in a world so affected by sin, as intense as those symptoms might be. But thankfully, Jesus came to deal with something far more intense than symptoms. He came to deal with the very author of sin and evil. And because he did victoriously, those of us on this side of his cross work and resurrection can join in with the crowd on Palm Sunday with even more reasons to praise him. So friends, as we enter into Holy Week and then into every week that the Lord should write into the story of our lives, may the realities we consider today that make up God's story of promise be your guide and your hope. Let's pray. So Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your story of promise that we find in the pages of your word. We praise you that it will continue until our king returns again. We praise you that you are a God who graciously enters into the story of our lives to give us the guidance and the hope that we so desperately need that can only be found in you. And Lord, for those here this morning whose stories don't yet include your promise, those who still may find themselves standing against you, 
Lord, we pray that you would please grant them the eyes of faith to see their need for you and the ears of faith to hear your call to them today. And it's for the sake of Jesus and in his name we pray these things. Amen.